the condition we are in, in the state of ignorance we are in, in the state of war, in the state of economic depression, in the state of depletion of the resources of our planet because of the greed of psychopaths who thought they could create their own reality. Well, look at the reality they created. You're listening to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network, the world for people who think. Hello and welcome to Behind the Headlines on the SOT Radio Network. It's Sunday, April 23rd. I'm Neil Bradley, my co-host Joe Quinn. Hi there. And Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin. Hi everyone. This week, election mania. Elections are taking place in France today. Um... We're going to talk a bit about that and predict what's going to happen. No, no predictions, but <laughs> we'll perfect try. predictions. We, like everyone else, usually suck at predictions anyway. So, <laughs> but then um, we'll talk about some of the issues involved. France is today. Um, <clears throat> the Netherlands was last month. Uh, Germany later in the year, and now the UK joins this bunch of northwestern nations uh, in Europe having elections because they've called snap elections. They would normally have them in about 2020. And because of Brexit, there's a kind of crisis, ongoing crisis in London. So they're having elections in June. We'll be talking a bit about that. Um, And then North Korea. And that's actually also related elections-wise. They're having elections, also snap elections, in just 10 days, I think, early May in South Korea. And that's related to what's going on in in and around North Korea at the moment. So we're going to get into that as well. Um, the Great Korean question. It's been a... It's, it's insane. I mean, I don't know if we want to start with this topic. We probably should start with France, given its immediacy, but... Um, Korea, Korea is like every few years it flares up lots of hype about how evil Korea is and how we gonna fix him. Nothing comes of it, but everyone is you know let the powers that be lets everyone know we narrowly avert, averted another nuclear holocaust, and uh, so we're currently going to that again. Let, let us try and tease out why that keeps happening. Perhaps later in the show, though. Will we start with France? We. Oui. Okay. Everyone put on your best French accents. Ah, okay. Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, the France. <laughs> Did not sound French. <laughs> yeah, they have French accent. Your French accent is very bad. Learn. It is the It is the accent that makes me say oui, oui. You sound like you are Russian. <laughs> it is a uh, well. On that note, Neil. Yes, French elections. French elections. Sadly, they they tend to drag it out. So we might normally be able to have an idea by the end of the show who's going to win. Mm-hmm. But in France, they do it in two stages. Unless somebody wins fifty percent plus at the first pass, which they never do. Isn't it ever happened? 
Um, maybe, but very, maybe. very, very rarely. Not in recent history. Um, in addition, it does seem that it's wide open this year. There are 11 candidates ranging from, yeah, far left to far right, in quotes. Mm. Um, and not more than one anti-establishment candidate. Um, Marine Le Pen is most well-known for being anti-establishment, but she's not the only one, actually. There is one other guy, uh, Francois Asselino. Asselino, yep. Um, and if you can call him anti-establishment. The thing about France, this guy was a, um, not a tax inspector, uh, even more senior than that. He was like a, an inspector of the government, a, a budget inspector, a very high-level operative in the civil service for his entire career. And he's just entering politics recently. Um, first time running, you think, well, how anti-establishment can he be given, you know, his entire life work is to do with numbers and taxes. Um, but he's, uh, his, his thing, unlike Le Pen, he's saying, if I'm voted in as president, I'm t- I will take France out of Europe, the EU, straight away. Um, yeah, he, didn't he say he'd do it on the first day? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an example of, uh, that's an example of campaign promises, you know, right there. Yeah, you say something and let's see, try I mean, to follow it up. But well, see, <laughs> see who you, you know. There's a few of them all saying. But they, uh, there's a few of them saying that they take <laughs> that they take France out of the EU. So they obviously have to best each other. Mm, I'll that's do it in the first day going on. No, I'll do it in the first half day. Yeah. I'll do it in the first minute. <laughs> I'll do it before in I fact, get elected president. <laughs> in fact, I'm going to do, do it now. now. In fact, it's done. I did it yesterday. <laughs> that that's an interesting phenomenon. Like. People are trying now trying to out-populist the others, mm. which is a sign of the times. Right. Um, promising more and more. In fact, you know the, the party he started was called the basically a popular movement, the Popular Republican Party of France, right. two years ago. Yeah. Um, but can I just say one thing about him? It, it didn't just come out of nowhere. He has been consistently going around the country in the last two years um, giving talks on his reasons for disliking the EU so much. Um, he might talk indeed about the austerity and the neoliberal economics and blah, 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 and how that hurts European workers and French workers in particular. But he gives this whole background story to the creation of the European Union. He says this is a US project from start to finish. The European Union is a facade, a civilian mask on a military dictatorship or control from across the Atlantic. So uh, that's been his core message since the beginning. So it's more, it's a little bit more than just, I don't like the European Union. He's sticking it to the source of the European Union, which is this NATO military occupation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Digital occupation. Yeah, well, this guy, this guy, Salino, he's not going to win. He's probably not even going to, he's not going to win in this first round. He's not even going to get through to the second round. He's not going to be one of the top two in this first round. Uh, he, as Neil was saying, he's been around for a long time. He knows his stuff, all that kind of stuff. But And he's very, he's appealing to us and to anybody, any kind of like, anybody who shares our views in France uh, or is uh, that way inclined because he's, you know, he's he's effectively a conspiracy theorist in, in, in that sense. You know, he's not an outrageous conspiracy theorist, but uh, he is, you know, he subscribes to, you know, um, Kind of ideas of the deep state and um, and you know 
big business and stuff, controlling things from behind the scenes, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so he's very appealing from that point of view. But the problem is that uh, the the idea, those ideas, and the idea of the of the the term conspiracy theory and anything that can be labeled a conspiracy theory has been very well uh, discredited for quite a long time. You know, so anybody who tends to promote those ideas or that ideas that can be described as conspiracy theories tend to see they're, they're, they're basically not mainstream and unfortunately, like in most countries, most of the population, most of the voting population of any country is mostly mainstream. Um, th- those, the people's attention needs to be caught by something else and it is, in, in this election, their attention is being caught by, by something else and Neil was talking about it, it's populism. I mean, um, even the mainstream politicians uh, involved in this presidential election uh, are running in it uh, a lot of them have appealed <clears throat> uh, to or have engaged in kind of populist rhetoric. And what they're all doing, basically, I think, even if they don't admit it themselves, is that they're, they're trying to uh, to out-Putin Putin, Putin, basically. They're trying to emulate uh, the the approach, the, the public, uh, the interaction that Putin has with, with the Russian public and the stance he takes and the, the rhetoric that he uses. Uh, uh, they're trying to emulate that. And the ones that are being the most successful are the ones that are emulating what Putin has done in Europe, which is interesting. I think an argument could be made also that they're kind of responding to the deep unpopularity of Hollande, uh, oh, yeah. which has gutted uh, a lot of social services and, and uh, caused a lot of uproar mm-hmm. among the unions and, um, and groups within France who've been protesting like crazy. Right. Uh, I mean, he is easily one of the most unpopular presidents in, in ever for the last few decades. They're saying, or maybe ever. Yeah. Um, so it's like, okay, let me let me seem like I am not Hollande, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. whatever that is. Yeah, he was an example um, to not follow. Just do the opposite of what what Hollande is, basically, and at least you'll have a shot, you know. <clears throat> but as Neil was saying, that the you know. <laughs> They have the whole gamut of left to right, supposedly in this in this election. But it's interesting, and, and this has happened in, in other countries as well, as we've seen in the U.S. and in other European countries. That you know, these these terms left and right don't really mean anything anymore. They don't mean what they used to mean. You know, uh, for example, in France, the traditional left or socialists or whatever in France were the ones. You know, in the kind of sixties and seventies and eighties, uh, their platform, the, the left in France's platform during the uh, the latter half of the 20th century was <clears throat> uh, all about sovereignty and nationalism, protecting rights of of the French people, and 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 you know, serving the French people. And their, their main cry was was defence of sovereignty. Effectively, uh, they were the, the upholders of that against kind of uh, you know, kind of almost against multiculturalism or globalism and burgeoning globalism at that time. You know, they wanted to. Uh, put France first, basically. That was the left, but now that's that's basically Marine Le Pen's uh, stick today. Uh, so effectively, and she's the right. So the right is now uh, for the people, uh, for Nash, for uh, for all the things that the left used to, used to be for, basically. You know, and the left has become this neoliberal. Uh, Postmodern kind of political ideology, which which is totally for multiculturalism, globalism, uh, NATO, U.S.-led wars around the world, and remaking the world in the image of of the West. Basically, that's what the left has become, which is which 
bizarre because, and we've, we've talked about this in previous shows where it's just been switched, turned on its head, where left and right have been effectively switched. And, and that's, that's why um, Marine Le Pen, uh, the far-right candidate, actually is attracting more and more attention and more and more uh, support from French people because of, of that complete mix-up, you know. She's not just, uh, she doesn't just need to depend on the far right, you know, neo-Nazi type fascists for her for her support now because because the stuff she says actually appeals to a much broader spread of French people who have their heads screwed on. Uh, mm-hmm. But of course, they're still afraid to vote for her to some extent because she has been, you know, identified for a long time, and particularly her father as a very far right sort of fascist type, uh, you know, racist, kind of like Trump, the things that are said about Trump, you know. Uh, but anybody who thinks, I mean, you know, you have to think about these things, and anybody who thinks that, uh, you know, if Marine Le Pen were to, become, were to become the president of France, which is maybe not very likely, but certainly should get into the, it'll be between her and someone else. Um, if she were to become president, that suddenly the first thing she's going to do is, well, after removing France from the EU, first thing she's going to do is round up all the Muslims and, you know, fire them out of a cannon back to Algeria and Morocco. Uh, people who think that she's going to do that because she's anti-immigration are as deluded as the people who thought that Trump was going to uh, herd all the Mexicans in the US back up the border uh, in the first days of his administration. So... It's hard to speak to people and, and try and, and... There's a lot of emotion around these kind of elections and a lot of beliefs and assumptions and stuff, but um, people really need to remember um, the difference between... And just look at, look at previous, previous administrations and any government in the West. They don't do what they say they're going to do. So don't people shouldn't be freaking out about... Shouldn't have freaked out about Trump, for example, and shouldn't be freaking out about Marine Le Pen either. Anyway... Well, Joe, you you spoke of this kind of uh, um, backlash against neoliberal, uh, NATO-aligned, EU uh, kind of aligned uh, politics, and I don't think we've seen a, a more cookie-cutter, uh, fine example of uh, of a politician uh, than Macron, uh, who is uh, running, and and I think he's in. He's kind of up there, um, yeah. along with Le Pen and some others. Uh, he got a, a something of a bit of an endorsement by getting a phone call from Barack Obama recently. Uh, yeah, you know, as, as one fellow liberal to another, good luck. We need your liberal your, your liberal values in in France, yeah. Yeah. Which, which he then put on his Twitter page, <laughs> and he thinks that's a winning ticket. Yeah. <laughs> he might find you know it's not. Um, he's obviously like a shoe in. Um, the establishment's candidate he comes out of nowhere last November, and mm. no party, no political experience, no, no, no. Never was elected before, never ran for office before. He was, he worked. Um, he was in the, he was minister of the economy under Hollande, um, but he was just appointed out of some non-elected post in the Elysee that he had uh, previous to that, and um, and he was he actually played a significant role in Macron played a significant role in making Hollande's uh, presidency one of the most unpopular in history because of the law there's a law that was passed during Hollande's presidency that bears Macron's name the Macron law 
and it was basically in favour of big business and cutting, uh, you know, uh, cutting, um, increasing the work week basically for people and basically passing laws that favoured big business at the expense of. Uh, of, of workers and uh, people didn't like it. And was and that was that what they were calling here the, the labor law that people were protesting? I about? think that was so similar to it, but you know, a different uh, measure. There's one actually. I'm not sure if it was exactly the same law, but it was basically the same idea. Mm. You know, um, and yeah, I mean, not that Alan needed much help in in becoming the, the most uh, disliked president in history, but uh, Macron certainly through his economics and the guy came straight out of the yeah, like you said, came out of the Rothschild Bank with all sorts of great ideas <laughs> from that sector of, of industry, you know. Uh, I think in France they call it the uh, what's the term? Um, it's like travail de putain or something like that. <laughs> it's like uh, a, a prostitute's business basically is is, is banking in, in France and um the only thing that Macron has going for him as a, as a banker, basically, is that he has, he's charming. He's young, charming, 39 years old. He'll be the youngest president in the history of the universe. And, and he's been saturated with media coverage. Yeah. So, but so, I don't think he's going to fool the French. No, he's not going to fool the that. French unless, you know, somebody out there, like, rigs a bunch of votes or something, which, you know, is, is possible as well. There's no way he's up there in the polls either. No, I don't think he is. He's got a very they, – they talk him up, you know, but – um, I don't think he has any significance because you can't have it. You can't just come out of nowhere and within six months suddenly expect to be elected president. He's no history. He's no people don't know him. They only know him for six months. Um, uh, the majority of people, and you know, he has no history. He has no political history. He's never elected before. Never ran for office. Never had to actually speak to people before this run for the presidency. So, uh, as much as you might like to, uh, he's not going to really get a lot of votes. It's going to be. We can make some predictions. It's going to be. Uh, in the second round next, which is on March, May seventh, uh, I think uh, it's going to be either it's going to be Le Pen versus uh, Fillon or Macron or Mélenchon. No, no. Okay, Mélenchon is another. He's an actually he's an old hand. He's been a senator for a long time. He's a nut he was job. in government at one point. He's, he's considered like he'd be like the far left populist, maybe. He's a nut job, Trotskyist, and you know, and people might remember that <coughs> the um, he is he's not a nice not a nice person, and he's just a he's a he's a high level Mason, you know he's a senator in the French Senate. He's been around for a long time, and uh, he he espouses the same kind of you know pseudo leftist uh, ideologies as the neocons uh, did before they became neocons before they invented the U.S. Uh, neocons and reinvented themselves as neocons. All of them were Trotskyists. All of them were for world revolution. These people just take on political ideologies and throw them off depending on the, the, the times in which they live. But all of their, their, their ideology is effectively what's called today neoliberal, which is about uh, going around the world and uh, solving everybody else's problems because, you know... Because of their inherent superiority. Because of Pax Americana. Or, sorry, Pax Americana. No, Pax Americana, actually, is a better term. Uh, so, yeah, I don't like uh, Mélenchon, and he doesn't seem to be a very nice person. I watch the videos of him, and he's not a very nice person when he interacts with people. So, um, yeah, but on the, like the broader picture here is that you had a Brexit, right? Which maybe uh, can lead us into talk of the, the UK upcoming UK elections that were announced recently. But you had a Brexit uh, last year, i.e. a referendum. British people voted, do you want to stay in the EU? 
suddenly they all, or surprisingly, uh, and, and to everyone's shock, especially those in the British establishment, the British people said, yeah, let's leave the EU. Where did that come from? Why? What was happening at the time? Well, it's no coincidence, if anybody thinks it is, it's no coincidence that that referendum happened uh, right more or less in the middle or the time of um, the immigration crisis mm-hmm. or at the head of it type of thing after after a couple of years of these you know terror attacks plus immigration, i.e. war refugees, not an immigration crisis, not Im- immigrants, they're war refugees and the refugees from wars that have been deliberately started by Western powers, i.e. the British, the French, the Americans, etc. So these people are, are the the refugee crisis is a direct result of Western intervention in the Middle Eastern countries and blowing up like Libya and Syria and and, and Yemen, etc. and and African countries as well. So the thing is that was a direct the British leaving the EU, voting to leave the EU, was a direct um, response or was provoked by British people's fear of whether real or imagined, fear of being inundated with a bunch of foreigners. Now, a swarm, as yeah, Prime Minister they, Cameron right. described it. And they talked it up. Even even the ones who were against the British government, or the British, uh, the UK leaving the EU, uh, Cameron, they talked it up. They tried to scaremonger and fear and uh, put the fear of God, fear of the fear of Allah in pasty white English people uh, for some bizarre reason because they didn't want them to leave, but then they decided to have a referendum, and the obvious conclusion of any thinking person would be, well, you've just scared the crap out of these people, uh, that they're going to be inundated or overrun by a horde of Muslim refugees from war zones. Um, and so you just, you just, you just scared the, the crap out of them, and, but now you're going to have a referendum and ask them if they want to stay in the EU, with the implication that staying in the EU facilitates movement of people, i.e. refugees, to the UK. Therefore, the obvious solution for every English person was, or every British person, the majority of them, was, well, leave the EU then. Let's close our borders. Let's become an island nation again, a fortress nation, and keep the refugees out. That's basically what it was about. The Brits have never had a problem with the EU. They freaking love the EU. They love the whole, they have loved the whole free movement of people, holidays in France, holidays in Spain, you know, buying houses here and there and everywhere, you know. Uh, and it's the same for most other European people, particularly Western European countries. They, they like the idea of being able to have all liked it. But right now, you see this, this talk of all these exits. The British, British have done it. Marine Le Pen is talking about a Frexit. Somebody, um, who else was it? Uh, As- Asselino, as you were saying, is, uh, although he's not going to win, he was talking about as well. So there's a lot of talk about the breakup of the EU, uh, by, of, of individual states leaving the EU. Why is that? Well, there's only one reason. I mean, it wasn't there four years ago, five years ago, but now it is. And it's happened in the UK because of these refugees. And why are the refugees? Well, because of wars, because of Western invasions of the Middle East. <clears throat> now, you might think, and of course it's a kind of neoliberal thing as well, which is like, well, Multiculturalism is great, right? A melting pot, bring everybody in. And the Germans were all for it. Angela Merkel's like a, <clears throat> a kind of nut job neoliberal who, who seems to think that, apart from the workforce that it supplies, uh, I think she liked the idea of, you know, um, lots of refugees coming and getting the, French, the German people really acclimatized to the idea of living in a multicultural society. 
and they haven't realised that people, you know, especially when that's presented in the context of terror attacks, which have been ongoing, that people don't like that. You can't force multiculturalism on people in that way via war refugees. Britain, the UK, England is a multicultural society, but it has built itself up to be that uh, over a long period of time, as the US has done as well. You can't take countries that have some level of multiculturalism but have a dominant, for example, in Western Europe, a dominant white-slash-pseudo-Christian or Christian uh, population and then just, from one day to the next, dump a bunch of uh, foreigners, i.e. Muslims of different race, different ethnicity, on, on them uh, in the context of these people coming from a war zone that also produces terror attacks, which have traumatized the people of these Western nations as well. Uh, they're not, that's not multicultural. And these aren't people who are being integrated in society. They're being dumped in the society as uh, extremely needy people from a war zone. That's not, that's not how you create multiculturalism. What you do, that's not how you create multiculturalism. What you create is a backlash, a nationalistic, isolationist backlash from the population to uh, an, an attempt to force that on them. And that's what we're seeing. And it's going to happen. I mean, if they keep this up, it's going to happen in... Um, you know, every, every country in Europe. I mean, there's already the issue we talked about in a previous show in, in the Netherlands with this guy, Gert Wilders. Um, it's an issue in Germany. It's an issue in France, obviously. It's an issue in Spain. It's an issue in Italy. It's an issue in Greece. It's an issue in Hungary. It's, you know, I mean, if they push this, then these people who have who dreamed up the European Union as their grand plan, their vision for, for Europe, will be destroying it by their own hand, by their inability to control themselves, to control their love for money via invasions and, and destruction and bombings of other countries, particularly those in the Middle East, which have a lot of resources. But apparently there's and some like factors that Joe, don't care. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I think among the elites, there's, this, there's also this promise of a, of a future workforce that's going to work for super low wages simply because they're in a position to... Uh, take advantage of these desperate uh, right. uh, refugees and migrants, and so you have the you know the corporate sector uh, frothing at the mouth of uh, the possibility of taking advantage of these people. Uh, in the meantime, you know, like you said, there is this huge backlash among the 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 people who the working class who are probably already uh, taking a lot of these uh, who have a lot of these uh, these jobs and positions and. And so they're they're kind of being pitted against uh, the the migrants uh, in this economic uh, sphere as well. Uh, so that it's messed up in all kinds of ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's not it's not. I mean, they could stop the wars in theory. They could wise up and stop the wars. But that's not. There's a broader issue as well here, which is that you know things uh, from an environmental point of view aren't going very well. And I think it's very likely that over the next number of years we're going to segue from. The, the, the chaos that they've already created by their destruction of Libya and bombings of African countries and their attacks on Syria and destabilization of the Middle East, all of the problems they've created in terms of refugees uh, as a result of that, that's going to kind of segue into, I think, as the climate continues to go uh, kind of more kaflui, uh, that you're going to have large uh, numbers of people leaving certain parts of the world and probably, and because there's a precedent set, uh, initially anyway, for for Europe welcoming refugees, then a lot of them are going to come to, to Europe anyway. And that's just going to make, you know, you're going to have, you have a, 
a perfect storm there where you have Europe, European countries already primed to be uh, to, to have turned inwards and to close their borders. Just they'll have been primed uh, to do that, and that will may 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 actually be the reality. We have a lot of uh, countries who have kind of broken away from the EU and are have, have right wing <coughs> leaders in power, and uh, and you're going to have an increase in the demands of refugees, not necessarily because of more wars, because part of the isolationism, particularly in terms of the French election. Uh, and if if Marine Le Pen were to win, would be in theory, according to her, a reduction in Fran- France's involvement in NATO's wars. For example, she claims that she will uh, uh, remove France from participation in NATO, and France has only been in NATO for uh, ten years. Uh, it was Sarkozy in two thousand and seven, as soon as he got elected, that brought uh, France back into NATO after a long uh, period of. Uh, of, of of being independent of NATO, well, that went right back to uh, Charles de Gaulle. So um, yeah, so in that sense, you have a on that front, it could be good. Uh, you might think it'd be good that these countries would become more isolationist and therefore less inclined to follow the dictates of the U.S.-led uh, wars and, and around the world. But uh, like I said, I think the environmental aspect could follow quickly on the heels of that and just make the situation worse, compounding uh, an already bad situation. You said at the beginning of the show that um, the rise of popular movements in general, not just the more famous ones like Le Pen and Wilders, in Europe is an interesting development and that they're they're basically trying to be be more like Putin, which is super interesting because it was about two two or three years ago that U.S. intelligence first started leaking uh, reports into Europe via the British press, actually, that uh, Putin had an army of coverts networks all over Western Europe infiltrating youth movements, political parties, uh, governments, media, you know, like this veritable communist conspiracy, um, Comintern, uh, which was laughable on the face of it, However, I think what they're speaking to is they're coming up with a scenario that they're inventing a conspiracy to obviously prevent what they don't want to happen. But it's to, happening anyway as a consequence of their what own they're actions. Doing. Right. Yeah. So it's ridiculous. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's insanity. It's like, it's not jobbery. You know, it's like, uh, these people are creating a situation that they claim they don't want to happen, but they can't stop themselves because they're insanely greedy and they just don't know what they're doing anymore and they think they can just create the reality and everything will work out. They can, they can push a political or social ideology on, on the world uh, that is all wonderful and multicultural and, and lovely and lets you know, uh, the right to protect, the right to invade other countries and free everybody. And, uh, but the results of that are really bad for the people in, in the countries that, 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 that they govern and that they want to 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 adopt this to, to to get on board with this ideology, and then when the people don't respond well to that ideology, they turn around and say, "Well, it can't be anything we've done. It must be Putin, because well, Putin because Russia because <laughs> you got to have a scapegoat, right?" In the meantime, Le Pen and others are Filon also. He's more. I mean, he he was a prime minister under Sarkozy. Um, Villon was actually part of a, a group, that, a group of 
and French MPs that went to Crimea just a couple of years ago to report that everything was rosy there relative, relative to the hell that they presented in US media about what was going on. Um, I just want to cover a bit, you know, the kind of atmosphere of the media coverage um, in France this last while. Just a few days ago, the smaller local papers in the country had headlines about how, you know, Front National, Le Pen's party were noxious, you know, unelectable, uh, basically evil. I mean, the media bias has been full on against her. It's not been it's not been totalitarian though. She's getting on TV, she's in the debates, but they certainly twist everything that she says, much like Americans saw in the US with Trump. Um they did push a little bit the line that Putin is hacking the elections. I thought they were gonna go more hardcore with it, but they had a problem here. They Trump Trump was easy prey because Trump was an unknown politically. But Le Pen has a history here going back and way back. I mean, her father was the leader of this Front National in the 70s. Uh, so they were trying to insinuate left, right and center that uh, Marine Le Pen was Putin's puppet and that he was hacking the elections on her behalf. But I don't think it, I don't think it flew very well and they, they quietened it down. But you still see the odd report about how Russia is actively um, hacking, in quotes, French elections. Um, so that that's going on here. We had a terror attack, in quotes, just two days ago in the heart of power in Paris. It was a terror attack yesterday in the Canary Islands. Did you see it? Did you guys see it? Harrison and Alain? No. Well, this video, and it's, I mean, it just shows the depth to which these terror attacks, uh, the insinu... Uh, the, Insidious nature of these terror attacks. Uh, there was, there's a large, there's like a um, cruise ship. Oh yeah. That lost power. Oh no, it didn't lose power. It was crashed in, it crashed into a wall of the port, and it knocked down the wall of the port. Now, that was a terror attack, because somebody put a, a website on, on a kind of jihadi website. Somebody wrote on a jihadi website that the captain of that ship was uh, a soldier of the Caliphate. And he did it for the glory of Allah. Uh, so, you never know with these things. Anything can be a terror attack. The, re- <laughs> the reason I say that is because that, that, that claim that I just made is about as ridiculous as the claim that that terror attack in Paris the other night was actually a terror attack. Right. They, I, 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 won't, I won't use my analogy that I used earlier on, Neil, for what could be a terror attack in Paris, because it's too crude. But, the point being that this guy that they said was that Daesh or ISIS then came out later on on some website and said he was a soldier of the caliphate, uh, but got his name wrong, claimed he was from Belgium. Um, this guy was in prison from 2000 until 2015 for the attempted murder of two policemen. Two years after he gets out of prison on parole, i.e. in 2015, two years later, i.e. the other day, he goes and he shoots a policeman. And before he shoots a policeman and actually and kills one this time, he said he's shouting at people. I'm look, I want to find where, where are the police? I want to find a policeman. Now, where was ISIS in 2000? This guy obviously has a personal grievance against policemen. 
What has that got to do with Daesh or ISIS or their caliphate or him being a soldier of the caliphate? Yet the entire media, and still to this day, even right now, if you look at the, in the news, you'll see talk uh, relating to the French elections as what effect will the terror attack the other night have on the French election? It's like, what are you talking about? Are you saying that this was a terror attack because some doofus probably in like Tel Aviv wrote something on a alleged jihadi Daesh website claiming that this guy, I mean, he may as well literally have claimed, they may as well have claimed that the captain of that ship that crashed into the wall in the Canary Islands was a soldier of the caliphate. That's how credible it is. But apparently the media just can't stop themselves. They can't, they can't not call anything that happens, any violent act by anybody in France or any European country as all, anything other than a terror attack, regardless of the facts around it. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is ridiculous. He he was originally in prison, I think, for a, a plan to kill um, a couple of uh, children and a woman. And then when he was in prison, I think in 2003, as the story goes, uh, he wrestled a firearm from a security officer and shot him five times uh, so um, that he would even be let out of prison, even after 15 years. Mm. Uh, considering his his mania for for uh, attacking people, people. Uh, yeah, I mean it, it's uh, that in and of itself is ridiculous. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and, well, and then the yeah the only two things like uh, that have allegedly tied him to ISIS were first of all the report from you know the ISIS news news agency that called him <laughs> Belgium a Belgian when he was a uh, a Frenchman Al Belgique and then Belgique. the second was. <laughs> was that this um that they found a note that was sympathetic to ISIS but yeah. and so these latest news reports were saying they found this note near his body mm. you know near his dead body the found, so, the found okay, Muhammad, so, Muhammad Ali's <laughs> passport on 911 as well yeah well and they also found this guy's um uh a copy of his driver's license in the car mm-hmm. but um yeah. Well, and that, well, before I get to my first point, that I, I guess I should just ask: Is it a, like a common thing in Europe to to carry your, you know, your ID and to put it like I don't know, like in your glove box or on your dashboard or on the, on the passenger seat? So there's always a, you know, an ID that you've got with you that's not on your person. No, <laughs> have you heard? No, you, no? no, it's ridiculous. You don't put <laughs> it in your drive. You don't put it on the passenger seat beside you because somebody will, might want to steal it or something. I mean, you, you keep. I mean, yeah. French driver licenses are are pretty small, they're made of paper usually, or, or plastified paper, and, um, you know, they're kept in wallets, yeah. along with other well, things, you know. Mm-hmm. And presumably, along with your, you know, your driver's license, if you had any, like, you know, notes that you, you know, love letters that you'd written to al-Baghdadi or something, you'd yeah. probably keep them in your pockets as well. Right. And when you're getting out of a car and shooting, you know, a bunch of police officers, are you going to be holding that note in your hand so that it just happens to fall out, you know, before or after or while you're getting shot by the police so yeah. that it falls, you know, several feet from your body? Right. No, you're get, like, there's no, this note isn't just going to be magically appear, you know, several, well, however far away from your person. If you have it, it's, it's going to be on you in some way. But no, all these reports say, oh, they found this note, you know, in, you know, in proximity to the body somewhere on the floor. It's like, give me a break. Right. This guy clearly had a, obviously based on his history, had a, had a problem with security officials going back to 2000. 
when there was barely any mention of Islamic terrorism, never mind ISIS or Daesh or a caliphate or anything like that. So, I mean, it's complete bunk that, that, that he would be, you know, associated with other ISIS or whoever the hell they are, uh, would, associate, would try and claim him and what he did as, as anything to do with him. You know, it's ridiculous, a terror attack. It's just, it's just boring, you know. I mean, it's not even, not kind of a, bunch of propaganda isn't even entertaining or intriguing. Boring. Yeah. <sighs> try better. People need to try better. Anyway. Um, <laughs> I have a question. You're talking about Brexit and its timing. Mm. The whole referendum. Mm. And wasn't it interesting that it took place in the middle of a refugee crisis? What were you getting at there? That they wanted to have that then. No, thought it was a, it, the, the reason a large majority of Britishers right. voted for it was because of the refugee crisis, because the, there was a refugee crisis that was obviously the direct result of uh, US and Western European government or military invasions and bombings of, of other countries. I mean, Libya kicked it off in, in, in real fashion, and but there's other... Uh, conflicts going on in Africa that, that produced refugees and then Syria created an awful lot more and so it was only last year so that was after if you go back to Libya you're talking after five years after five years of a growing refugee crisis uh, during which time people were being told that um, the refugees were were going to be swarming all over them all over the lovely English gardens and and that it was also facilitated and made much easier by European EU policies on the movement of people and, and EU policies on, on immigration, that these people were being uh, facilitated to come into uh, the UK because the UK was part of the EU. And that was a big part of, that was the, that was the emotional, the major emotional stick or ploy that was used to... Uh, encouraged so many people to vote to leave the EU, and it's a big part of the the right wing in France and in other European countries. It's a big part of their uh, popularity uh, right now. Is is that this war refugee crisis uh, is is a big problem and has to be stopped? I mean, you know yourself, Neil, all the stuff that's been talked about. You know them. Uh, coming into countries and raping every raping women left, right, and centre, and you know, acting generally in a very uh, antisocial kind of way. You know, I mean, that's that's been spread far and wide over the past few years in Europe, and it's it's a major uh, aspect of the popular uh, the popularity of of, of right wing um, isolationist. But again, the term right wing has negative connotations. But when you look at what these people are saying, you can't really argue with it. That is actually a good thing because it. It goes along with, in theory, it could be a solution to that refugee problem, which, you know, is, I mean, as it's, it's a very difficult situation because, you know, your Western governments and the U.S. are responsible for creating refugees, so it's a bit hard to turn around and say, well, those countries should, should, should lock their doors to those refugees. But, I mean, it's not going to make it any better by letting them all in, you know, especially if they're being, if it's a way for, uh, you know, kind of shady intel agencies to, 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 to funnel jihadi terrorist type uh, operatives into Europe as well and create terror attacks, so you gotta you gotta make a tough call and say I'm sorry, uh, st I'm sorry, no more. And, and it's not. I mean, 
you know, if someone comes in, if, if people are seen to be coming into your house or people are in your house and, and they're not acting very nicely or they're seen to be not, or understood to be not acting very nicely, well then, you're fully entitled. It's not inappropriate to say leave and to kick them out. Yeah. And sure, it's, there's going to be a lot of injustice and there's a lot of people who are in need, but the problem is war, is, is illegal wars on other nations that have created this, you know? And as long as that clampdown on refugees are closing off of borders to, to, to immigrants... Which is a reason, but isn't a strange policy anyway? Countries throughout all of history have had policies about stopping people coming into their area, or villages of people stopping people coming into their villages. If it's combined with a sincere commitment to stop the warmongering, which is at least what these right wing, most of these right wing parties in Europe are saying, then it's certainly better than the status quo, which is where the people continue to be bullshitted by polished politicians who talk all sorts of wonderful neoliberal, you know, humanitarian values while they go and destroy the world and create chaos, not only in other countries, but back at home as well. There's nothing worse than that. I mean, that's, that's certainly not uh, uh, something that anybody should be voting for. But the problem is that it's, it's covered over in this kind of veneer of, of, of multicultural humanitarianism and, and all sorts of noble values that, that jerk people's chains and get people to kind of tug at their heartstrings type of thing. But it it hasn't. It's pretty clear at this stage that it hasn't uh, been a good policy. It's not good for people to be supporting that or to be electing people who who have that agenda. And that agenda ultimately is obviously it's based on war and warmongering, invading other countries, and stealing resources. So it's basically based on greed. Mm. So Obama was a good dancer. He danced with Ellen DeGeneres. He was a lovely, charming, you know, smooth-talking kind of guy. But he was a warmonger, and he created a lot of stress and problems and chaos and in in, in, in in other parts of the world, uh, despite all of his, despite his appearance, so people need to start to see through that, you know, and see that agenda behind the scenes. <clears throat> yeah, it, it's it's a mul- the mass movement of people into Europe, just as it has been for the US over the long term, is a multi-level, complex situation. Because, I mean, there are repeated statements from European Union officials. I'm thinking here of uh, John Claude Juncker, for example, um, saying we want people to come in because we need the resources. Yeah. I them, we need the workforce. Now he didn't go and flesh it out, but it's quite clear that uh, the birth rate across much of Western Europe is 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 basically negative. The population won't, not only will it not sustain itself, what it means is that there's less and less workforce to pay for an older and older population. So that's, that's one level of it. Mm. That's a long-term mm-hmm. demographic issue. That's a bad idea. Yeah, it's a bad idea, but you can see where part of the motivations for wanting open borders as far as Europe are concerned. Yeah. I mean, they've said right. as much themselves. They have a demographic yeah. problem and they want, they want workers, yeah. yeah. But the problem is that your workers aren't really workers, or they might be workers eventually once they get over their, 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 their trauma from coming from a war zone. But it's not an ideal situation where that's the kind of people that you're, that you're inviting into your country, you know? And the other problem is that the indigenous population, people aren't as, despite all of the kind of progressive rhetoric, people aren't as evolved you know, uh, socially or culturally or whatever, or in, in terms of an, having an open mind and 
uh, and embracing multiculturalism, they aren't, they aren't as evolved as that when faced with it. You know, if they have large numbers of people of a different faith and of a different ethnicity coming into their country and, 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 and certainly without the means to kind of really immediately integrate into society, don't speak the language, you know, people are going to react badly to it. So what are you going to do? Just tell them to shut up? I mean, that's, that's human nature, you know? These people aren't taking stock of human nature. It's like they're forcing people to just get with the program, you know, because it suits our agenda. And it's not working, you know? I mean, that's where this whole right-wing populism has, has come from, you know? I mean, sure, it's been stoked with the kind of fear of refugees to a certain extent. But the main problem behind that is psychos in power and their warmongering that have created the problem. That's the that's, You go back to the source of the problem, which is that. If Marine Le Pen is elected, is she going to make France great again? Yes. No, probably not. Is that a yes or a no? No, it's pro- that's, an, that's, that's probably a no because there's, not, there's no making of any part of this world great again. It's all going downhill. Progressively, you know? It's, it's on the... It's progress. Downhill. Progress downhill, okay. yes. <laughs> and um, the people like Marine Le Pen, the benefit, and we're using Trump as an example here, is that the benefit, if you leave aside the idea of someone coming along and putting the world to rights and restoring greatness in any country and making everything, solving all the problems, that's not going to happen. But happen. Putin restored Russia. Yes, but he's got a different set of problems. Uh, but he, and he's in a different category and for different reasons. But if if you leave aside that idea of everything turning out rosy, then you reframe it in terms of what's the best possible situation here. And the best possible situation is that a lot, the largest number of people in any country in the world, and here we're talking about Western Europe and, and the USA, um, but anywhere in the world, the best possible scenario is that those people will begin to wake up to the nature of the system under which they live. And you can't just go around spreading conspiracy theories or what are called conspiracy theories and try and convince people that way. People have to see it in real time for themselves. And you have to have a reaction from the kind of deep state, if you want to call it that. You have to, they have to be exposed. The curtain has to be pulled back on them. And it seems that using Trump as an example, the way that happens is you get some crazy, you know, maverick kind of populist leader who has very strong convictions about certain things to get them into power and then the deep state has a reaction against them and there's basically a, a serious fight goes on and the deep state can't but expose its hand in trying to deal with that kind of situation and then people a fight takes place in public and right. everyone gets to see right the nature of what they're yeah of right. what goes on behind the scenes and 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 that's and what, why it's traumatizing for people and, and it'll scare a lot of people and freak them out and all that kind of stuff it's far better than, than, like I was saying earlier, then they would continue on with the comfortable lies and the slow, steady march to to something probably really much worse, you know? I mean, it's better to be, you know, to be awake when shit hits the fan. Let's get it all out in the open. Yeah. It's better to be awake, awake when shit hits the fan rather than hit you in the back of the head while you're sleeping. Which well, what brings- about the... Oh yeah, go ahead. Or are you doing? I was going to switch, switch tax. Yeah, go ahead, Harrison. Something well, on I was just going to do the same thing. So go okay. ahead. <laughs> <laughs> well, we've talked about Brexit. Um, the UK is going to have elections now in June. Uh, I I knew they'd have to because <laughs> what happened last year was a 
I don't know. I, I thought I knew what they thought they were doing by having the damn referendum in the first place. Anyway, they got the result they didn't want, and it's just been a nonstop crisis for them since then. And here's the inevitable result. They have to call snap elections only two years after, apparently, a clear majority win for the Tories. Um, and it's all blown up in their faces. Theresa May's called elections uh, for June. They, they think... I think they think, I don't know for sure what they think, but they think maybe that they need to consolidate the power mm-hmm. of the Tory party. Right. I mean, uh, there's no reason not to take Theresa May's reasons for calling it at face value, which is I need to know that I have full cabinet support, parliament support, and a mandate from the people going into the actual negotiations of how we break up with the European Union. Um because there's a lot of division, in, at least among the liberal elites in the country, about what kind of Brexit, whether it should happen at all. You remember all the reports after Brexit. Well, no, we're thinking of taking it back. Let's have a second vote. People didn't know what they were talking about, blah, blah, blah. Well, the people did speak. I mean, it was a clear no. We want out. So they're, they're, they have a constitutional crisis, basically, where they're trying to juggle Brexit and retain power without facing what the UK really needs, which is a fundamental kind of regime change, because Scotland is going to have another independence referendum. There's talk for the first time, seriously ever, of uniting the North and the Republic of Ireland as a result of Brexit. That's no longer a fringe conspiracy, radical viewpoint to take. The Prime Minister of the Republic of Ireland himself suggested as much. European commission officials have been backing him up. It's not hard to see why. They're saying, yeah, no problem for the north of Ireland if it reunites with with the Republic to be technically allowed back into the EU. So it strikes me that the elites in London are panicking. I think they hope having these elections is going to give them control of the situation. But it's been one thing after another. I mean, Brexit, Trump then, and suddenly they're isolated and they're and the Russophobia and their hatred of Putin. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they're getting a the very skittish type thing. And they, they I mean, Theresa May, the, the British Prime Minister, she uh, she's only in the, in the job like less than a year because she took over from Cameron after the after the Brexit referendum, um, because he left because he said, let's have a referendum. I'm sure people won't vote for leaving the EU. If they do, I leave. Everybody voted for leaving the EU. Leaving the EU. He had to leave, and she was she was elected as the as the new uh, head of the party, and therefore became prime minister and basically continued on his his term. Not elected, elected. Not elected. She, no, she was yeah. internally elected, mm. and voted to be and. So, um, so she doesn't really have a mandate uh, in that sense. She didn't stand for the, the position of, uh, or she didn't stand for a, a general election as the leader of the party. It was given to her, basically. So she feels she doesn't have a mandate, uh, and she also thinks it's a good time to do this because they think that Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, the opposition, the main opposition, is uh, kind of really, you know, he's been suitably or sufficiently um, um, dismissed or... or well, uh, dissed, basically, but he's the but, yeah, marginalized. 
he's the elephant in the room of domestic British politics. Right. Throughout all this, even pre-Brexit. Yeah. As soon as he was became Labour leader, they had a fit. I mean, <laughs> he's labelled, you know, national security threat, number one. Yeah. Um, massive campaign against him. Yeah. Oh, he's unelectable. He'll never be... Mm. And even inside the Labour Party, they were knife right for him with all the Blairite uh, yes. supporters. Tony Blair supporters didn't want him because Blair basically is just part of the war party, the same as Conservatives, you know, the establishment. Uh, so Corbyn is a kind of a, a man of the people and that kind of thing. And I'm not saying he's... He's another anti-establishment candidate. He is, yeah. This time on the left, in right. quotes. And it's, so it's a desperate move by the Tories. I mean, it, it's rather than, rather than it being... Rather than the truth about it being that they're calling this election, snap election in two months... Um, or less than two months, uh, from a position of strength. They're doing it from a fear yeah. of uh, that if they don't do this now and get another fi- start, put the clock back and get another uh, five years, they um, that that things could go south over the course of Theresa May's the re- remainder of the, of their term and elections in twenty twenty mm-hmm. as they would come around, they wouldn't be sure about them. You know, so they want to start again and start off in a with a landslide victory and they think they can get it but it's uh, it's based on it's based on insecurity They're, this call for an election is based on their own fears and I think those fears are justified because I think over the next few months um, Corbyn uh, I mean there's already a campaign to, for all of the other parties in the UK to basically unite in some way or other not necessarily actually join all become one party or whatever but all of them put their efforts into making sure the Tories don't win <laughs> because uh, none of them want the Tories to win. Um, all of them are opposition, basically, so they're all trying to figure out how a way that they can make sure that the Tories don't win uh, in this election. And I think there's a good chance. And I think uh, Jeremy Corbyn, uh, over the next number of weeks of, of electioneering as the leader of the opposition, will do uh, very well. Actually, he'll... Uh, they're saying now that people are putting bets on him. This is this one kind of formal, uh, informal opinion polling in the UK, that people place bets on who's likely to win, and he's now the favourite mm. in terms of how many people are placing bets on him. Right. So public sentiment is it plays a big role in that but as well. But you won't hear this, though, in the me- in the media. It's, Corbyn's been written off, you mm. see. He, the la- oh, well, the Labour Party, they're in disarray. There's no chance for them to win. Maybe the Lib, Lib Dem, the other sort of minority party in the two-party mm-hmm. British system, they might make a bit of a comeback. So it's basically, it's going to be the Tories again and we're just, you know, checking in with the people to confirm that. But yeah. I think that's their, that's, that's, their, a bad, that's their belief. If they're, and they're working on that, and that's then a bad, screwed. It's a bad attitude to take as well. I mean, the same thing in in France, you know, that um, where Marine Le Pen has been, basically every single French person leading up to this election in France has been told that they should not and cannot and never should ever vote for Le Pen. And that's a very bad thing. That's, that's a bad strategy because people tend to just go, well, why, why are you telling me what to do? Are you saying I can't do that? Are you saying I can't push that red button? Well, mm. what if I want to? Mm. You know, so it's just a bad idea, you know, despite the, the historical kind of like um, long-term um, presentation or, or um, dislike or aversion to right-wing politics uh, and with, with uh, the Front National Le Pen's party being um, being the kind of whipping boy in that respect you know they're the ones you don't vote for they have done in, in the past number of elections they've always done very well they've always or not always but in the last election they got into the the, the final round basically went with between them and uh, Hollande oh no uh, no yeah 
in the, in the previous one it was between them and uh, Le Pen and Hollande. Um, so they always do very well. And I think now, given the context that we've been talking about, uh, the insecurity and the sense of people, of the EU falling apart and the threat from terrorism and all that kind of stuff, that just is playing into the hands of, of those kind of parties, you know, uh, the ones that say, uh, let's close down, close down the borders, let me protect you, you know. People don't feel they need to be protected. And the EU worked very well because there wasn't much of a, a sense of uh, social insecurity or a threat from terrorism in the heyday of the of the EU as it was being built from the 50s onwards, you know, and it was wonderful. Everybody was travelling around Europe, no problem. Everybody was happy with this idea of, of, of multiculturalism and to the extent that it is in Western Europe with everybody being uh, the same ethnicity, more or less, you know, a majority of people being, being the same ethnicity. But um, well, it, it doesn't work anymore, you know. Mm. There was there was a lot of effort during those decades to ensure that any candidate that was pro Moscow did yeah. not come well, to power. Well, during the Cold War, yeah, in Italy, in France, as Gladio, yeah. So it's kind of more the same, but it's more pronounced these days yeah. in, in today's paradigm. Well, they could get away with it in the past. They could, they could get away with it, creating an establishment uh, in, in European countries or in the EU and creating the EU uh, power structure. Uh, because there wasn't really a genuine, uh, well, there wasn't any insecurity in that sense. There was nothing people really had to fear. There were, you know, there were a sort of trumped up fear of the Soviet Union, but people didn't internally in Europe. It wasn't a problem, and people were happy to 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 come together and that kind of thing, you know, and, and share borders and stuff. But now they've taken it to the next level, where they've actually brought direct insecurity to the people of European countries by having these terror attacks, and and people are basically going back to. Uh, uh, feudal times almost, you know, where it's like serious direct threat at my borders, therefore close the borders, and France for the French people, Spain for the Spanish people, Italy for the Italian, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and that seems to be where it's going. And maybe it's, I don't know, maybe it's in a certain sense it's a good thing to the extent that there are there is a national identity and a cohesion within any European any European country uh, as a group or in the US as a, as a group. Um, maybe it's better that countries tend to kind of close themselves off uh, if there's serious kind of environmental and therefore social chaos down the line. Maybe that's a kind of almost protective system, a protective mechanism, um, or, or natural response uh, as if countries were or, kind of organic kind of uh, uh, things, if you know what I mean, that respond in an unconscious way to... to perceptions of threats, you know, of our perceptions of insecurity that mm. you basically closed down. I mean, you know, that's what you did. I mean, at the moment, their ability to do that is, is severely distorted by this unspoken, and yet everyone knows it, beast in the room, namely this globalist structure largely mm. coming through the US. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where it distorts any national policy. Mm-hmm. Why is it that, like you say, every leader comes in and ends up doing the opposite of what they said they were going to do is because they get in and they're brought into the smoky room and right. they say, well, we understand you said these things, but you know, if you don't do as we tell you. Yeah, or here's the way things work and you're not about to change them, so you can't change them. So, you know, you come in and you become president and suddenly realize there's a system set up that already runs the country. Yeah, you're meant to be the leader of the country and you're meant to normally run the country, but you, I mean, where were you? If you're meant to run the country, who was running it before you, you know? And obviously you're not going to come in and, and take over, basically, you know? And there's only, I mean, presidents or prime ministers only generally get four or five years, you know? 
that that's that's not a sustainable. That's not a, a practical way that a country could function in 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 the long term. You know, Speaking it's like it's almost like a family unit. You know, mm-hmm. and you have parents who change every every four years. That's not a good idea. You know, it's really. I mean, you have to have a continuation of of power. So clearly, there is a continuation of power behind all of these governments. And they, over the years, they have congealed into one. They've tried to congeal themselves into yeah. a, a more, more, uh, a kind of single unit almost that expands its influence and controls more and more. Mm. They're not content with just uh, a deep state in France or a deep state in the UK or deep state yeah. in the US, but one that is, is global in structure. Because you go from this idea of well, France needs a continuation of government beyond the administrations that come every four years, and then it does take long for people once they've established that and realize that that's needed, to then say, well, what about the world? Maybe the world needs a continuation of global governance uh, to secure, you know, its its trajectory along a particular path. Well, on that note, I'm I'm wondering if that would be a a good uh, time to depart into uh, the recent uh, heightened rhetoric uh, between the U.S. and North Korea, because... Um, it seems that uh, Trump's threats against North Korea in uh, in its missile testing uh, sounds like you know uh, WMD all over again, uh, Iran having weapons of mass destruction all over again, um, uh, Syria using uh, chemical weapons. You know, it's the same. You're you're too dangerous to be doing what you're doing, mm. and so we have to come in there and intervene for the sake of of world safety, uh, which of course leads to heightened tensions, heightened rhetoric, uh, a very strong response from uh, North Korea, and um, and what seems like the point of hysteria where where South Korea and China uh, are all getting involved and. In trying to quell the uh, the reaction of North Korea to Trump's statements, so uh, you know, I, I guess a question here, uh, because Trump has really kind of put himself into a corner, right? He's he's threatened North Korea if he backs down in any way uh, from his threats to uh, take action and and try and impose a stop on North Korean missile testing, he looks weak. Um, yeah, this at is... At the same time, you know, this is a horrible situation. Uh, why Why did Trump do this? Is this part of the... Is this part of his attempt to appear uh, strong? Has he... Has he... Or has he capitulated in some ways to the deep state and in, uh, in creating a new situation that would justify bombs and and uh, military intervention this isn't the new situation this is this is not a new horrible this is the same old horrible that's been in place mm-hmm. in, in North Korea since you remember team at America. Least 1950 team America world police I mean I I cannot take the hysteria seriously because every time it flares up I keep thinking of that movie you know I'm so won't we because it's it's it is slapstick. It really is. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of stake with nukes and stuff. But let's look at the chronology of events here. Um, I think something gave obviously in in Trump's decision to yield. We don't know to what extent yet, but he he has yielded to, to the deep state, so to speak. Um, the Syrian chemical weapons attack that was you know took place in the minds of the deep state. Um, 
happened early in the week. Then by Wednesday, Trump gives a green light for airstrikes. By Friday, he's got, uh, well, probably, probably behind his back, someone on the national security team is telling NBC News that Trump was that week, presumably at the same meeting as the decision to bomb the Syrian army airbase, he's given three options about how to deal with North Korea. Just out of the blue. Okay, we're going to deal with it, right. And they are to either go in and kill Kim Jong-un, two, um, park nuclear weapons in South Korea, or three, launch cyber attacks on North Korea, basically destabilize everything, cause power, blackouts, all the rest. Um, and that's it. And you're like, what? <laughs> um, but that, that's how these people think. But the point I'm getting to is that they brought, decided to bring it to a head at the same time as they dangerously up the ante by almost attacking Russians in Syria. So, um, what's going on there? Why, why, why now? I guess mm-hmm. once they figured they had a way into Trump thinking or they got him on side, they thought they would push for this as well. It's also happened, remember, while the leader of China is sitting down to dinner with Trump in chocolate, Florida. Chocolate cake. So no- North Korea becomes hysterical the same week as the airstrikes in Syria and Trump's visit with uh, Xi Jinping. So um, I think it's because uh, there are elections coming up in South Korea. Again, snap elections. They weren't scheduled. They Well, they were scheduled for the end of this year, I think. But they were brought forward because of the successful impeachment of the incumbent president. Mm-hmm. Park, what's her name? Surname Park, I think. Park Life. Park Life. Um, you may remember this because this was blowing up in South Korea right at the time, just mm. before the U.S. elections last November. She was booted because she had a Rasputin. She, she, she was into either. something weird and corruption with some of the uh, noble families in South Korea yep. who basically run the industries there. She had a, she had a healer type person who she was allowing to uh, allowing to interfere in government policy, like a kind of yeah. a female Rasputin. Yeah, um, it was causing, so it caused a big serious issue uh, last year. Basically, loads of protests on the street, all that kind of stuff. So she's been booted. And more, well, been you know, she seems to me being forced to forced out as a result of this, or forced to call elections. She, she was impeached, which meant elections had to be called right. for May 9th, right? Which is very soon, right? And who are the contenders? The contenders, well, basically, for the last ten years, conservative governments have ruled in South Korea. They've tended to be fully pro-U.S., um, anti-China, anti-North Korea, in the sense of it's kind of complex, North. Both North and South talk about reunification because it, to them it's inevitable. It's just a matter of how it happens. Um, but the conservative leaders tend to take a more hardline stance. Uh, so for the last 10 years or so, there's been a very Cold War, cold version of the Cold War standoff between North and South, which has brought it to the brink of right now U.S. Um, so-called missile defense systems are being installed in the south, supposedly pointed at North Korea, but Beijing knows damn well they're pointed at her. Um, This process is is underway. It's not been completed yet. The incoming leaders 
are not just more, you know, more the same. More the same. They're actually, uh, they they basically of the other political persuasion in the south in South Korea, which is always let's not antagonize the North. Let's remember now the reality that China is economic superpower number one. Oh, that's right, and we are dependent on it. Mm-hmm. It's right next to us. We can't be antagonizing the North mm-hmm. or Beijing. Right. So the problem, and is they're saying <clears throat> we need to freeze the installment of these systems while we have a rethink about it. Yeah, U.S. military missile systems. So that's what's going on there. There's yeah. a political battle taking place among the elites in the South, which have two different directions. Mm-hmm. In fact, it's led um, one Japanese conservative publication to just today print. Here, here's the title of their uh, op-ed. The nightmare may become real. An anti-Japan, pro-China dictatorship in control of the entire Korean peninsula. <laughs> That's the inevitable they, they can't have happen because then it's curtains for Japan as, as a regional superpower, I suppose. Um, more importantly, it means that the U.S. is ousted from a reunified Korea. Mm-hmm. It, com- it comes down to just... Just not justifying so. the status quo, which is the South Korea is an offshore, well, it's onshore, but technically connected to the landmass, but it's basically a U.S. military base. It's, it's a failsafe in the event of Japan not being a, a super. Um, it's a major key in in U.S. Uh, military control and presence in yeah. in in, uh, in Asia yeah. in, in in the Far East, basically. And, and they I mean, don't they don't want to lose in quote South Korea, right? Of course, yeah. Like they don't want to lose anything that they have held on to. And they wouldn't necessarily lose, they wouldn't necessarily be kicked out. But the problem is that if, if Korea were to, if there were moves towards unifying Korea, or if you had, uh, as a first installment, you had a, a government in South Korea that was more pro China uh, than it is uh, pro USA, and then, then South Korea would no longer have. Uh, uh, would no longer necessarily have uh, be as open to uh, America as it is today, and and then eventually, if I mean that would be a setback, obviously for the US, and they'd have to start renegotiating. You know, I mean the Americans like to keep things as they are. When they have a client regime or a pro-American government in any part of the world, they do everything they possibly can to make sure that it stays that way, mm-hmm. and that the next successive government is exactly the same. So, uh, but. Things seem, things seem to be changing all over the place. Uh, as mm. You may have noticed in the past few years uh, for uh, the kind of uh, U.S. hegemony of, uh, around the world and that um, their ability to, to basically dictate terms to, to pretty much everybody. It's, it's been changing very, very fast and it's catching the Americans by surprise. And, and of course, then Trump coming in is a major issue. So, it's, I mean... Well, it mightn't look like it. This is the period. All of this stuff we're watching, we're watching right now over the past few years, and and the stuff we've been talking about in the show, is, if you look at it, it really is an example of things going very badly for the quote unquote elite of this world. You know, the kind of deep state things have gone very bad. Of course, it still may look very bad to us in the sense of well, they still have all this control and they're doing all of these nasty things, having wars, etc. But you have to look at it in the context of where they came from. They came from a position of complete, uh, um, a complete dominance. No, no challenger. No challenger whatsoever. Economically so, or militarily. Yeah. 
So the extent that it's moved away from that, which and it has moved away from that to a great extent, is really, really bad for them, you know. Mm. And it's called, unfortunate for the rest of it, it causes a lot of chaos because you get the reaction from them to that loss of power, loss of influence. Yes, but and it's the threat of it as well. It's the most important yeah, but thing. That's, the threat. That's really all they've got. I mean, I know Trump actually lobbed missiles at Syria, but really, that's like it. Uh, people died, I know, but that's kind of the extent of the kinds of things. They might, there'll be more to come, no doubt, but that's pretty much the extent of how, of how much they can back up all the rhetoric. Mm hmm. Um, it, this is interesting. This explains now why the first port of call for Rex Tillerson mm -hmm. in January, and then behind him, Defense Secretary Mattis, and now this week, Vice President Pence were Japan and South Korea. Mm -hmm. Yeah, major. It's, it's a key point for them. And it has been, I'm reading a book about how key access to China and East Asia has been. Um, going back uh, over a century, um, super book is called The China Mirage by James Bradley. And no relation. The Hidden History of American Disaster in Asia. And it's, it's full of grace. I, I, I would probably have to save it for another day, but um, there's one point where uh, President. Theodore Roosevelt, so 1905, uh, signs a treaty with the emperor of Korea, then one small empire, uh, which isn't a bunch of a military or anything. It was still more or less a kind of uh, vassal state of China, even though China had long since gone into decline. Um, so there was no real power, but Ch Japan did, and Japan was emergent by then. Japan was so emergent um, that it took on the mighty Russian Empire that year in 1905, mm -hmm. um, with U.S. backing, of course, and the Brits as well. Jacob Schaub. Um, the Theodore Roosevelt has signed this friendship treaty, basically promising Korea that if it was ever in, uh, under any attack, and the implication was under attack from Russia or Beijing, at the U.S. will come to his aid. And then he signs, well, it, there was no, there was no uh, treaty, actually. It was just done behind closed doors. He basically gave J J Japanese em emperor the green light to invade and occupy and completely colonize and take over Korea, um, which took place uh, on the basis that the Japanese were taking Korea to prevent the Russians coming in. It was the same narrative then as it is now. Well, we need we need to colonize this part of the world or that part of the world because Russia mm -hmm. or because China. Nothing's changed. I mean, and the way they go about things, say one thing publicly, and then have these secret deals behind closed doors. There's a mm -hmm. there's a history there that's just wow. And it's it's plus ça change, plus ça reste la même. The more things change, the more things stay the same. True that. So, yeah. So that's a geopolitics in a nutshell. Well, yeah. It doesn't change. It's pretty much the same, the same dynamics at work. Uh, I have been for, for quite a long time, going back three, three, 
at least 300 years, be it the European powers or the US, you know, and the, the, the battles, the, the great game, as they call it, you know, um, and, and where's what's a strategic what's a strategic area of the world and what isn't and where they focus their their attention you know it's yeah it repeats uh, or or rather what they're doing today is simply a continuation of a very old game that they've been playing for for quite a long time and you see the same the same moves being made to 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 secure certain areas of the world for certain certain interests you know but uh, yeah that that Asia obviously is very very strategically important for the US, you know, it's a massive amount of shipping, for example, for, of, of, of products from China mm. and, and other Asian countries that go from there um, across the Pacific to the US, you know. Yeah, and, and this this isn't a new thing, by the way. We shouldn't say that that's a new phenomenon. It, it's becoming popular again because China is powerful again. Mm. But 100 plus years ago, it was the same thing. It was yeah. how to get stuff from China because mm-hmm. they've got all the stuff we mm-hmm. want. Uh, from that part of the world, yeah. Yeah. Well, Neil, I just wanted to add something to something you said a little earlier in regards to this um, this kind of uh, fake hysteria that's been drummed up in regards to North Korea, and that is, um, it was pointed out that the uh, the U.S. naval armada uh, that was initially reported to be going to the Korean Peninsula. Um, was actually on their way uh, to a war game exercise in the Indian Ocean, thousands of miles and moving in the opposite direction at or around the same time Trump was, you know, mouthing off. So, um, and then later, you know, uh, the administration said that there was some kind of miscommunication about where they were and where they were going. But um, it just seemed like, uh, this really was a war of words mm-hmm. um, and that there there really wasn't um, so much intention behind doing something to prevent North Korea uh, from taking another one of these uh, uh, missile tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, a lot of bluster there that got a lot of people in an uproar and um you know, you have to you have to wonder how much of this is, uh, um, as Scott Adams would put it, Trump just lobbing these these kind of verbal hand grenades act from a position of power, yeah, um, psychologically over uh, over his opponents uh, or perceived opponents, and um, and how much of it is is really uh, a first or early step in the direction of acting totally crazy and violent um yeah so i think there, just, are, there were a couple little. of th- a couple of things going on it was i think it was maybe perhaps primarily um done with a view to swaying the south korean population and they, they would have seen what took place there late last year i mean millions of people were out in the streets it was more than just you know get rid of this person it was kind of pretty revolutionary in the sense that there's a popular uprising here um how do we deal with it and they'll deal with it the the way they've always done which is to instill terror and fear of the other and it's nearly always the other is one that would naturally be your your friend and neighbor and colleague in this case it's it's a classic you've got one korea split down the middle and 
to maintain the status quo and to keep the people from voting, quote, the wrong way, you've got to terrorize them about their fellow Koreans. Anyway, um, that's that's one part of it. The The other part is... You remember when Trump was... He was still... He wasn't even... He hadn't secured the candidacy yet for uh, Republican Party. Um, we actually made fun of him because other people were making fun of him and they made these videos where they took out all the references he made to China and they just spliced them together. And he, he created this impression of a guy who was obsessed with China. Um, I think Trump in his sort of naive slash simply truthy kind of way was touching on the issue that for the US elite is the elephant in the room, China. It's all been all about Russia in the news the last few years since the Kiev coup. But the real game changer is this country that is just enormous. I mean, it's a scale that, you know, Westerners can't really conceive of. If you were to plot the industrial development into a modern leading economy of the four top countries, say, in the last hundred years, um, four or five, whatever it is, uh, one, guy's, one, one economic historian has done it, and he's plotted on a chart. You can see the, the British modernization, and it shows you how long it took to reach... Um, the, to reach a GDP level that made them basically the world's largest economy. And then he's got one for the US, and that's in half the time, and it became twice as big in terms of nominal overall wealth. And then they plot China next to it, and it's a quarter of the time of the US again, and it's four times the population. The, the scale of this is just... Well, what I'm getting at is that there are so many other global events going on that they're one thing in the news and they don't ever mention China but really it's about in the background it is about China because it, it's, its sheer size is inevitably impacting everything around it and, and far afield as well um, anyway, that's why I mentioned Trump and his banging on about Ch China's killing us China's killing he never he never quite explained to Americans what, what he meant by that but I, you can get the gist of it he meant that killing us is in they're economically, they're doing really well. And yes, indirectly, they're taking jobs and wealth and, and know-how, technological know-how. And then, of course, the Chinese are accused of stealing technology and all this stuff. It's not stealing technology. It's once the technology is for sale everywhere, everyone has access to it. That's just the way the free market works, right? Um, it's, its impact is, is, is so huge, but it's also so slow. China isn't throwing its weight around. It doesn't need to. It's thinking long term. Let everyone else have their hoo-ha, you know, all their hysteria, their their uh, their uproar over this issue or that issue. We'll just sit back, you know, just keep making stuff, keep buying stuff, and you know, we'll always, you know, talk peace. And everyone else wants to have a war. Okay, well, you know, uh, at the same time, though. They are building a big stick, and they already have a big stick. They have nuclear weapons. They have the world's largest army. They still have only one, you know, aircraft carrier. But who knows? 
If they can build like a hundred cities on the QT, apparently, like most of them, they keep quiet. You know, where they're completely developing their their interior in the in the country, they can probably mm-hmm. build twenty U.S. sized aircraft carriers in secret, and then just say, "Yeah, they are." <laughs> At some point, who knows? Um, and I think this. What Trump was picking up on is the chatter he himself was hearing among fellow members of the elites in the U.S. that yeah, this is this is a problem. Um, we are going to be supplanted in one way or another. I don't know how they think they're going to cope with it. In the long term, they can't. But that they don't really think long term. They're all about the short term, you know. Maximize profits now. I just. Give me the money. Give me the whatever you got. Give it to me now. You know they don't. They think in a different way. So it's going to it's going to have inevitable consequences. Of I can't see there being a kind of a a meeting of the minds. One of those minds is basically going to be. It's going to get Alzheimer's and just continue going to into madness. Yep. The other one won't. So I think that's what we're sort of seeing play out in the world stage, this insanity of – it's kind of deflected cleverly because people are thinking of North Korea. If they've thought about it for a minute, no, what the elites are really getting you to think about is China because that's what obsesses them. Right. Um, and it, 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 That's it, what obsesses I, Kissinger. Kissinger, right? The pivot yeah, to China. I mean, he, the obsession China, with breaking up the USSR and uh, China relationship 60 years ago. That's now been reformed. Oops. It's been reformed, ironically, well, in part as a consequence of their own actions, of the elite's actions. Because Putin turns to Beijing after they do Kiev. Yep. <laughs> but then it was always going to happen in some way or another. So, What didn't happen, happen, happen quite so... Um in such a one-sided way, you know, but they asked for it, basically, you know. Um, it was, it was, they basically, the, the West came on with uh, My Way of the Highway, and Putin was uh, responded by basically saying, well, it doesn't have to be only one way, so, you know, have it your way, but, yeah. So, do we have any news yet on no, no. <clears throat> That's a shame. We'd love to be breaking news. Breaking news. Somebody won something. Uh, yeah. Well, it's not even going to be a win, but no. you know, who knows? It's going to be somewhere between Le Pen, Macron, and Fillon, basically. Those three: Macron, Fillon, and Le Pen. It could end up being uh, Fillon and Macron in the final, and then the whole Le Pen talk will all be history. For another five years, at least. But who knows? That's the only real, the only real upset in this French election would be if uh, if Le Pen won. And first of all, she'd have to be in the top two tonight, and then she'd have to win on May seventh. And it's a bit of a long shot, to be honest. I think, given you know, there are a lot of people in France who are very much pro EU and see France as basically the founder of the EU, and they'd be the last ones to want to. Uh, to go with anybody promoting uh, an exit from the EU. Um, so I'm not sure sh- that there, there's enough people in France who would actually <clears throat> vote for her, particularly in the second round, if he was up against one of the other polished politicians, you know. 
So we're going to have to wait and see, but yeah, so we don't really predict much except uh, on the broad strokes. Because um, there's no point in predicting, because you just get egg in your face. Anyway, um, I think we're going to leave it there for this week, folks. Um, I think we'll cover all of our topics. Um, so thanks for listening in. We'll be back next week with another show, and we'll have lots to talk about, I'm sure, given all the stuff going on. Um, so until then, uh, I wish you all, we wish you all a very good day, evening, night, whatever. See you next week. Bye. Bye. Take care.